0: Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. We're looking at how the church should be. And part of the reason we're doing that is, excuse the analogy, vegetarians, vegans, it's the last one this week. But I've been saying for three weeks, don't allow a dodgy kebab to ruin your appetite for the lamb roast. We've all been there, right? One bad experience ruins all of the goodness and the greatness of something greater down the track. And it's the same for many people, right? Your friends, my friends, family. All it takes is one dodgy Christian. And people can wander and stay from the church for years, if not forever. And it's, uh, it's both challenging and affirming. It's challenging for those of us to call ourselves the church as Christians because it shows us that each of us have a responsibility to someone uh, to represent God to those who haven't seen him clearly. But it's also affirming. It's affirming that there is a way to see God for who he is. We've said that these days in order to believe, you almost need to believe despite Christians. And what I mean by that is if you are searching, and there's always many people amongst us who are searching, trying to figure out who God is. If you are searching for him, you've got to come to grips with who his church is and how he designed it to be before you can come to grips with who he is. Now, one of the um, common objections, right, is this. Uh, oh, you, you Christians, you believe in something greater and something bigger, but then your lives look no different from everyone else. Anyone ever heard that one? Anyone ever said that one? <laughs> Now, why is that? There could be two answers. One's theological, one's practical. I'll give you the theological one, but I won't dwell on it because I don't want you to fall asleep. Uh, But in simple terms, we're all made in the image of God. And so what that means is that every person, both the Christian and the non-Christian, are made in his image. And so therefore, uh, you can have a non-believer, a non-Christian, whose life is more beautiful and more radiant than their erroneous beliefs. But on the other hand, we Christians know that we're broken and we're fallen and we're not quite perfect. And on the other side, we Christians can live lives that are less magnificent than our right beliefs. Does that make sense? That's the theological bit. Stay with me. The practical bit we're going to look at this morning. The practical bit, you feel it. I want a joy. I want a greatness. I want a bigness in my life. But it just doesn't seem to compute. It doesn't seem to translate. Have you ever felt that hunger that I want more of God? I I want something powerful to happen in here. But it's not translating. Why is that? Well, I said last week, or the week before, one of them, I said we all have a Nick Curios decision to make in our lives. What I want to share with you again this morning, that each and every one of you, if you're made in the image of God, has a greatness, a champion-grade quality, that if you just got this, man, you could conquer the world. There could be a stability in your life. There could be a joy in your life that you've never known that is almost supernatural. The sort of joy that people looking into Christianity want to see, right? That's the promise to you. How do we get that? Look, unless you have this, what we're going to talk about this morning, you won't have it. I guarantee it. You're not going to have it. Unless you have this, you won't find it. You won't find God. You won't find greatness. You've got to have the church's lightning. And here's what I mean. The church's lightning. One of the greatest movies ever made, Back to the Future One, (laughs) had a big problem. Marty McFly had this amazing time machine called the DeLorean. Uh, Doc had rigged this thing up. It could travel through time, this car from the 1980s. And so Marty finds himself stuck back in 1955. Part of the reason is he has this incredible time machine, but they don't know how to power the thing. There's just not the power to power this thing in 1955. And so because they're in a time machine, they've known this one historical fact that on a particular night in 1955, lightning strikes the clock tower. And so Marty is stuck, but they know if they can just place the time machine at the right place and at the right time and the lightning can strike the clock tower and they can harness into that lightning, off they go back to 1985 again. What I want to say to you is that, look, you can have right beliefs, you can have the most amazing time machine um, for a body, for a soul, you can know all the right things, but unless you have the power, unless the lightning bolt, the power of God Himself connects to you, then we're not going home. What is that lightning bolt? It's worship. It's worship sounds weird to have the senior pastor talking about worship. It should be Mikey. He's the worship pastor. But I'm going to talk about worship. You need to have worship in your life. What we need to see this morning, here's where we'll go, is why you need to see worship clearly. Then we'll look at what it is and then how we should do it. Simply why we need to see it, what it is, how we should do it. Why do you need to see it clearly? I think the reason is here. Uh, Many people think that worshipping is what you do when you go to church. But what I want to show you this morning is whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, whether you're in church or out of church, whether you're singing or you're not singing, you are worshipping. We're always worshipping. Worship means to ascribe an ultimate value to something. And that's why in Psalm 95 that we're looking at this morning in verse 3, it says here, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. It's saying this God is the ultimate thing in our lives and he has to be, otherwise it's going to twist your life out of shape. And here's what I mean, here's a case study. I was chatting to one of our mums and she's just put her kids into one of um, Sydney's private schools, primary school. And so she's sitting there at one of the mums groups and one of the mums uh, was asking the question that she was really quite distressed because she wasn't quite sure of the pathway that was going to be able to get little Johnny from year two all the way into one of the Ivy League schools like Harvard or Stanford. And she was deeply concerned. She's been trawling the internet for this sort of stuff. And this kid's five. And, but it's all legit because she said, of course, yeah, he's, he's going to be a brain surgeon. Um, another one, sitting in a cafe circular key under the Credit Suisse building with a good friend of mine, post-GFC 2010. And I asked him, "Mate, well, he's in finance, what's it been like being in the epicentre of the biggest financial earthquake that, the, that we've seen in our known history? And he said, mate, I survived, I was lucky, I was alright. But I've, I've seen friends who have been on the verge of suicide because they're slowly coming to the realisation that purely economically a 24-year-old can't be worth a quarter of a million dollars per annum to the economy something was out of whack and when they can't find any other job other than back to Burger King or the post office or whatever it might be then there's a deep struggle within them why why is that? it's worship worship there is always something in our life that has to become ultimate that we say to ourselves consciously or subconsciously if I have this then I'm worth something So here's the thing, it's not about singing or not singing. The process of worship is to recognise what is your heart clung to that is ultimate in that way. Is it God? Is it not God? And in other words, the world is not divided into those who do sing and don't sing. The world is divided into people who are worshipping things that will ultimately distort your soul or things that will ultimately fulfil it. And Some of you are going, oh Sam, come on, this is 21st century What are you talking about? It's not going to bend me out of shape. I'm not going to get distorted. I'm not worshipping this thing. Hey, question, what happens to that mum when at age 50 little Johnny says, you know what, I don't want to go to Stanford. I want to be a mechanic. Do you think she could be bent out of shape? Do you reckon Johnny could get bent out of shape if that thing has been placed as ultimate value in her life? So... There is always something that we are building our lives on, setting our hopes on, ascribing ultimate values, saying, if I've got this, then I'm worth something. Quick quick little litmus test. Here you go. It's like the pool chlorine stick for you right now. How do I know if I'm worshipping something? Here's some of the ways you can do a quick acid test. Write it down in your phones, in your notebooks. Um, ever been in the presence of something or someone and time just flies? Could be worshipping that. Um, Do you have things that irrationally worry you? Look, we have worries and anxieties. That's normal. That's natural. But you know the thing that is irrationally and makes no sense, constantly keeps popping up, could be that you're worshipping that thing. Here's another one. What are the things that you effortlessly invest your time and your money into? That could be an object of worship. I don't know. You've got to do the litmus test. Hold it up against the back of the container. See if it applies to you. Um, Question then, how does this lead to greatness? You said, Sam, worship is the way to know greatness. That's a message this morning. Verse 5 to 7. Let's have a look at the psalm here. It says, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the maker. Verse 4. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him, for he is our God. What's the psalmist doing there? The psalmist is inventorizing God, listing all of the things of God that He's done, and look, let me give you an example. The best example I can think of. Um, anyone here ever seen the Antiques Roadshow? Yeah, one of my favourite little shows on television. Every now and then, a little bit of good English countryside and and some fascinating little items. And you know, you know the whole dynamic. You see people lining up. The Antiques Roadshow's come to town. So you get this teenager that's turned up with some ugly-looking mug that his grandmother's left him in the will, and he thought he'd better keep it, it's in, been in the back of the sock drawer because, well, grandma gave it to me, and so he takes a mug because he thinks, I'm going to go to the Antiques Roadshow and, and see what this thing is, and so everyone's going through the line and they're just working through, and then suddenly you ever notice how like maybe one in a hundred, they're the ones that make the television, you get this item where the expert holds it, and suddenly the, the expert's eyes just, they pop open, and the, they, they start to caress it and. Give give me, that, give me that mark. What is this? Look, oh, And they start pointing to friends and look at the detail on here, and they turn it over. I think this is an Alex Yes, it is. it is. It's an Alex Brennan original. It's an original. And, and they start working themselves up into a sweat. And by the way, have you, have you ever noticed how um, you knows notice how the Tino just to act when they see this? They start to suddenly it's my mug. It's mine. <laughs> They start to get get a little bit little bit closer to, into the thing now. I just keep away. This is my mug. And what's the favourite bit that we all love about Antiques Roadshow? And it's the bit that comes down to it, right? When you ask the big question, the money question, what well, what's it what's it worth? That's when they cut to an ad break. <laughs> and then you come back in, and and the expert says, well, you know, I don't know. This could this mug could be somewhere in the vicinity of. I don't know, 100 to 150,000 pounds. <laughs> and what happens to the person that owns their mug? What do they do? Let me summarize what happens. Here's the first thing that happens for them. Firstly, they, they now, suddenly in an instant, acquire an adoration and an admiration for an object that they used to think five seconds ago, ago was a piece of junk. Then the second thing is that adoration then leads them to start thinking the value of that thing out into the implications of their life. Teenager says, oh, "I could buy a car with this. I could go to university with this. I, 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 I could do so many things with this." And then the last piece is it then changes their behaviour. So what have we got here? What the the dynamic we're describing is worship or worth to keep the antiques roadshow flavour going. The old English word worth meant to intricately study someone or something uh, to the point that you understand and elevate it to its true value. The, the expert up until that point has shown that kid that up the, until that point there was something of immense value that was under their nose that they had no idea. That's worth That's worship. Look at this. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him, and the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What is that? Welcome to the Antiques Roadshow. The average Sydney cider, they know of God, they treat God the same way that a teenager treats a Toby jug in his sock drawer is something of immense power and value that's underneath their nose and they've got no idea. So church, can you see what we're doing when we come into this moment as we sing and as we hear sermons and as we hear communion talks? All of these things are worship. It's placing God into the front of our lives to the point where we begin to comprehend His true value. It means to engage all of the faculties in to understand his greatness. And so that's how you get your greatness in your life. The difference between an average life and a limp life and a big life, it's not what you do, it's how you worship. How you see something beyond yourself that takes you out of yourself and you understand the value of who God is. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It's a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in his immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in his infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. The person who often thinks of God will, no longer, will have a larger mind than the one who simply plods around this narrow globe. And so can you see in summary worship is not conjuring up some emotional experience because Mikey and the band decided to play something in 68 and you just get that natural rock happening <sighs> Right just dial it down to 100 beats per minute and you just get a get a good sway That's so much so much more than that it's to, it's to dwell in the immensity of his infinity, to use all of the faculties, the mind, the heart, the ears, the heart, the intellect, the emotion, to inventorize God to the point where you begin to acquire an adoration that you think out of the implications of your life and it changes your behavior. That's how you find greatness in worship. I'm just letting that sink in for a little bit. And by the way, while it's all sinking in for you, <clears throat> I'm sure you don't. I'm sure you don't do this. I do this. But can you see sort of how incongruent to the concept of worship it is that if we reduce the Sunday to, oh man, I'm so over those songs where you've got to sing the bridge like 15 times over. <laughs> I don't, I don't like, I don't like the synthy ones, you know. I, I, I don't like the synth. I like something that's a bit more piano, and I can just sink my teeth into. <laughs> or you know, the lyrics are not theological enough. I've, I've been there. I've, I've thought it. I've done it. And yet, the tragedy is that if we don't understand this, we reduce worship to a style. We reduce it to a style when it should be the adoration of something of infinite value to bring all of the faculties together to admire and adore him. You know, can you see if if you do that, if you step into the, into this place, think, you know, thinking about all of those different stylistic issues, you're muting the faculties. I mean, that's like going to watch Mazorski's pictures at an exhibition at the Sydney Symphony Orchestra with earplugs in. Of course, the only thing you're going to get out of that at the end of that concert is that the conductor's shirt sort of became half untucked by the end of it. Can you see how the muting of our faculties when we reduce worship to a style actually focuses us on the things that are not God? I'm just preaching to myself here. Just don't mind me. Don't mind me. just thinking it through. We need to look beyond lyrics. We need to look beyond style. We need to look to the one that we worship when we do this. Um, how do we do it as we finish this morning? You've got to do it corporately. I talked a bit about it last week. Verse 1, come let us sing for joy. <laughs> The psalmist, of all things that could be individuals, says, come let us sing for joy. It means you've got to do this corporately. If you missed us last week, we uh, had the illustration from C.S. Lewis that said a person alone is insufficient to bring the other person into full activity. What he meant is when one of his friends died in his circle of friends, he didn't have more of the other friend. He had less of the friend because the three of them weren't together drawing the best bits out of each other. And so if you want to fully know God, you have to do corporate worship. And what that means practically in the context of worship is, have you ever found that you got nothing out of Sam's sermon, but then just one word of what someone said to you over coffee is the very thing that you took away from the entire Sunday? Oh, don't be so quick to put your hands up. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. You know, what Kelly reflected this morning? A truth of community or... A lyric that is in a song. I'm real enough to understand that it's not all about the message on a Sunday. But when we come together, someone reflects something on a message. Or there there is an idea that is implanted that only in the context of community can another guy get to another guy, and in a moment of vulnerability says, I know that you're struggling with that, I know that you're journeying with that, I know God's pushing you into that. How did you feel about that this morning? You can't do that in a sermon. You can't do that in a song but a sermon and a song and a community of people together that's what changes people you have to do this corporately and that's why we set the communion up and that's why we turn the lights on and that's why we pay the bills and that's why we'll never give up gathering because change can't happen unless it is corporate but also you have to do it deliberately you know it's not the information from the message that will change you it's the whole process and and Verse 8 is an interesting, fascinating little one that I, I struggled to get this week, and it sort of clicked for me. It says, Do not harden your hearts. It's such a noble passage, and then you get this weird thing. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me. Do not harden your heart. What's he talking about? The psalmist is referring to that moment. You know the moment in Exodus where the Israelites have come through the Red Sea, and then they're really, really thirsty, and Moses had to, to strike the rock in order to bring water out because they're so thirsty and they're so angry and grumbling at God and at Moses that they almost stone Moses to death and the whole point of this is that there is something in our human inclination that seems to forget how faithful God has been in our lives and how present he has been in our lives all along and we grumble and you've got to you've got to come into that you know in a you in know in a softer way I'll put it this way you know, I know what it feels like. Some of you might be spiritually dry this morning. Some of you might have turned up this morning and go, I don't want to go to church. But your spouse or a friend's dragged you along. At least you're worshipping deliberately. You know, I chatted with a friend this week. You know, they've, they're in that dry spot. Like, they, what do they do? They said, I don't even want to go and talk to God because I don't, I don't know what I would say. And I said to them, well, he's your heavenly father. You think any parent would refuse a child access because the child hasn't got their words together? If you don't even have the words, just go and deliberately sit with him. Cuddle up next to him on the lap. That's what every father wants. Just be in his presence. Move into a context that takes you out of the things that are frustrating you or dragging you down and just sit with him. Sit with him and listen to him. Listen to him like this, the way that Eugene Peterson says it here. He says, Listening to him is not seeking God in some general way, but answering the God who has spoken. The Psalms set their face against lush eroticism, this rank jungle growth of desire seeking to fulfilment. In a world of prayers that indulge the religious ego and cultivate passionate longings, the Psalms stand out with a kind of angular austerity. These prayers don't seek God. They respond to the God who seeks us. They're sometimes awkward, for in our religious striving, we're usually looking for something quite other than the God who has come looking for us. He says, and this is it, Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. There is a difference between praying to an unknown God who we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God revealed through Israel in Jesus Christ who speaks our language. In the first, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. In the second, we worship. Worship is deliberately moving yourself into a context, whether you feel it or not, to listen to the God who's spoken. Some of you need that this morning. I get that. So as we finish, some of you are saying, well, why do, why do some people get it and some people don't? Why do some people have these experiences of God? And by the way, that's our next series, Encountering God, in you know, the three weeks on what, what does it mean to have an experience of God. But why, why, is it that, why is it that some people get it and some people don't? I've been searching for God for years. I've been turning up the church for years and I still haven't got it, but everyone else seems to get it around me. What is it? You know what my answer is? I don't know. It's a mystery and if it wasn't a mystery, I wouldn't do this because we would just be some version of a pyramid selling scheme. <laughs> there is something deeply mystical and, and mysterious about worship. The only way I could describe it is that worship is waking up. Worship is when the things that you might believe, that you might believe, actually become real to you. How many people here in this place have had moments where I didn't believe that there was a God? I didn't believe that the Bible was true and inspired. I couldn't understand these passages, but now I do. I felt no power, but now I do. Anyone ever had those experiences? There's always something in some of us that are followers of Jesus who are Christians in which the, the things that we might believe became real to us. It never made sense, but now it makes sense that you simply say, I didn't believe, but now I do. I can't explain that. The only way I can explain it is I had a, I had a bad dream once. I had a bad dream that I was getting chased down by pirates. And I was on this boat with uh, all these pirates chasing me down. And, and anyway, they, a whole heap of them had grabbed me. They'd taken me to the side, this wild storm with like 30-foot seas out the side of the boat. And they'd taken me to the edge of the boat. And they're about to throw me off the boat. And they, they started shaking me by the shoulders off the boat. And, and, and then they started chanting, Sam, 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 like this. And they started doing it. And right as I'm about to get thrown to my death off the side of the boat, I wake up. And there's Kristen shaking me, going, "Sam, Sam, Sam, you're snoring again. Roll over. Ah, oh, safe. Well, at least I thought I was safe. See, when have you ever been in that moment? Right, that moment on the edge of a dream. What condition are you in, like that? You're in a you're in a, a condition where the unreal things, the pirates, are so real to you. You think you're going to die. And the things that are really real are unreal to you. Worship is waking up. John 8, Jesus says, I couldn't understand him. And he says, you're tied down to the mundane. I'm in touch with what is beyond your horizons. You live in terms of what you see and touch. I'm living on other terms. I told you that you were missing God in all of this. You're at a dead end. If you won't believe I am who I say I am, you're at a dead end of your sins. You are missing God in your lives. You know, in that moment, you know what Jesus is saying to you? You can repeat your name at the moment Sam, 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 wake up. Things that feel so real to you this week, friend, if I have done any bit of my job, or more importantly, if God has done any of His job this morning, there is a yearning, there is a tweak in your heart that has a sense that you're on the verge of a dream, that this world is a bad dream, and that you are way too alive to the things that are unreal. And the great news of the gospel is that when God interjects and comes into your life, He says, Wake up, you're home, you're safe. This is not all there is. If that's true for you, then you've become a Christian. If you're still living on the edge of that boat, then you're still searching. You haven't found him yet. He calls your name. It's just whether or not you will awaken to that reality. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.